I'm Eric Kaplan, a TV writer in Hollywood with a PhD in philosophy. And I'm Taylor Carmen. I'm a philosophy professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I lecture and write stuff about things like phenomenology and existentialism. And this is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, a philosophy podcast where we look at terrifying questions and we think about them and we try to figure out a way to, to move forward authentically and courageously. All right. So what is our terrifying question for this week, Eric? Okay. The terrifying question for this week is, do only fools fall in love? <laughs> well, do they? Let's see. What's well, the terror? I'm going to just say, yeah. just in the interest of props, yeah. I was inspired to do this podcast by an opinion piece in the Washington Post by uh, Tess Wilkinson Ryan. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought she makes uh, very good points. So so check to that. Uh, I mean, look at that. But that's that's where that came from. So so no plagiarism here. I read that. I thought it was cool. <laughs> and let's do a podcast about it. Excellent. So yeah, do only fools fall in love. Uh-huh. So it's not that there's this group of people called the fools and they're the only ones who fall in love. But probably almost everybody falls in love with somebody or something at some point. And the question is, when they sure. do it, are they being a fool? Are they being a fool? Right. Yeah. Is it uh, a foolish decision to fall in love? Um, and the argument, I think, would be um, you're committing to something that you don't know what you're getting in for. That's right. Um, yeah. Which seems like, oh, by the way, just uh, a, a, a question for a future episode is, which is worse, to be a knave or a fool? <laughs> David Hume thought it was unquestionably to be a fool. Worse to um, be a fool than a knave. David Hume said that. Much worse to be a fool than a knave. Interesting. And he think... felt that this was an example of the sort of huh. way that Christianity has distorted our true moral intuitions wow. by making us think that there's anything okay about being a fool. He almost sounds like Nietzsche when he says that. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think I disagree with him about that. But... You'd rather be a fool than a knave. I don't know if I would rather be. I think it's better. What is a knave? We should define that. I find it funny <laughs> to use knave? words that no one knows what they uh, it's a scoundrel, isn't it? It's a like scoundrel, a, yeah, like a, <laughs> an unethical person, an unethical person. It's yeah. a, a sociopath. Is it better Maybe. to be a, a fool or a sociopath or, or a cheat and a, a uh, yeah, a, 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 a cheat, someone who who deliberately stabs people in the back. Wow, um, is that what is that what Hume meant by it? Are we sure? I think I so. so. I mean, yeah. I think a knave is just someone who like he promises he's going to give you the money. And then you give him your car, and then he doesn't give you the money. <laughs> you can't so, count on him. Exactly. That's a knave. He's that's not. He's, I guess that's the contrast. The fool will fall for something, and the knave won't. Correct. The, the knave Correct. will cheat you, but the fool will right. be cheated. And then, and then, so so a rough and ready way to answer the question is: there's various offers to trust people, things, and ideas. Yeah. And there are some people who trust when they shouldn't. Yeah, and they're fools. And there's some people. Uh, well, I'm not. There's some people yeah. who don't trust when they should, and they're they're cynics. Yeah, right. Exactly. Which, and and like, like you might think, um, well, just trust when you should, and don't tr <laughs> don't trust when you shouldn't. <laughs> Buy low and sell high. Yeah. Yeah. yeah is that yeah. is is so? Maybe <laughs> that could be a way. Only full here. Okay. Here's my first uh -huh. uh, sarcastic <laughs> suggestion. Uh huh. No, there's nothing <laughs> foolish about falling in love. Just only fall in love with people who are worthy of your love uh, and not with people who aren't. And then uh -huh. you'll be a wise lover. Ah, uh, so the terrifying part of this is maybe there's no way to do this wisely and you're just doomed to be sort of 
disappointed or to risk disappointment and there's no way out of it because there's no way to sort of get into love other than like making this leap you have to make the leap you have to make the leap of faith with your eyes closed not knowing what you're doing and that's right. scary and maybe that's just uh um there is no way to do this well let's let's jump into yeah. let's yeah. let's um before we fall in love with that answer let's examine <laughs> it um but but my feeling is um no, I was just stating the question. I wasn't giving an answer. Right, right, right. But here's a possible answer. Yeah. The yeah. only way to live a worthwhile life is to sometimes jump into things with your eyes closed, not knowing what you're going to get into. And some yeah. of that includes falling in love with people, with 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 nations, with political commitments, um, with ideas. Yeah. Um, is, is that right? Well, I agree with that. I think there's another question we need to raise, What's which that? is, What's do that? you do you or can you even decide to fall in love? Yeah. See, I think it. I, you fall. You don't. So there's falling and there's jumping, and uh, we can be talking about whether you should jump or make a leap. But people often realize that they've already fallen in love. It's like it right. happens to you. It sneaks up on you, and then you realize it already happened, and you don't feel like it's something you chose. I so guess I feel like supposing my my much older boss said to me, Eric, we need to talk. <laughs> that 19 year old intern I've fallen in love with her I don't know who I am anymore but I feel alive it makes me feel young again I would say don't do that don't fall in love stop it don't yeah. do that you're kidding yourself cut right. it out right you're gonna you're gonna really regret it right um, but and, mm. and me saying that suggests that this guy does have some control <laughs> I think yeah I don't think you're completely wrong but I I it's a little bit of both isn't it yeah it's weird and that but I also sort of think like there are cultures that encourage falling in love they think it's great mm. and it's, then there yeah. are ones that discourage it and 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 there are uh. people and if if my boss said to me I'm falling in love and I'm just like <laughs> stop reading whatever you're reading stop looking at your <laughs> whatever movies you're looking at <laughs> yeah. and and don't do that and, yeah. and and i feel like that's what i would do get a grip on yourself i would get a grip on yourself man yeah For right god's sakes man get a grip but then of course sometimes people can't do you think our culture glorifies and valorizes falling yeah. in love i think so it's very romantic so. yes love at first I, sight and i think people love jumping it. and the risk and it's usually a happy ending sort of fairly, yeah. but, but not always and, and by the way i yeah. do think there's an interesting um so I was I was reading an interesting what's it called Knowing Less. I was reading an interesting blog by this woman named Ayella uh, called Knowing Less, and she mm -hmm. thinks that there's a difference between people who tend to place their responsibility outside themselves and uh, people who tend to place their responsibility inside themselves. Oh. And she mm -hmm. thinks that um, women traditionally tend to place their responsibility outside themselves it might be internalized misogyny i don't want to get it i don't want to get into that oh. i don't want to get into that oh. but i do think there's an interesting sense in which one of the things that people like about falling in love mm. and let's let's talk about whether we like it and then talk about what it is in some order yeah. but i think people like being swept up in something bigger than themselves yeah people like yeah. placing their responsibility outside themselves they like being let loose I like from it. the prison of the ego yeah i like it i'm for that I, yeah you're I, in favor i of think that. i'm gonna be pro falling in love and therefore pro fool yeah that's why i think i would rather be like i say it's hard to say i'd rather be a fool but i actually think it's somehow better to be a fool than a knave i mean well would you rather be a fool than a wise man 
I would rather be. I've often thought if sometimes. Fools, yeah. if, if fools rush in where wise men never go, oh. but wise men never fall in love, so how are they to know? Would you rather be? I'd rather be. Uh, the I don't fool. know who wrote those lyrics. It's famous. You'd rather be. You'd rather be um, the fool. In that I'd scenario. rather be the fool. Yeah, actually, I think so. You'd rather right. rush in where wise men never go. Uh, yeah. I mean, hopefully, I don't rush in stupidly, but. Well, is that an is that an impossible hope? Uh -huh. This is the worry, you're right? Isn't it? If you're like, I would hope to be a fool who never does anything foolish. Yeah. But, but uh, I don't ah. know if you can, based on my analytic philosophy training, I think you can hope for that. Like all good philosophers, I would like to draw a distinction. What is it? Between the fool and the idiot. Ah. So I'm not sure I have a distinction to draw, but I would like to draw a distinction. Mm -hmm. Being a fool is not the worst thing in the world because it means you have an open heart. You've got a kind of innocence and you, you trust people. I think that's very good, very important that you have a trust. The idiot, you know what I was saying, there aren't a group of people who are the fools, and we're talking about them. But, you know, being the village idiot is like a full-time job. You're just an idiot. And there are things we do that are foolish, and we say, oh, I was a fool. Doing that, I was a fool. You could be, there are people who are not fools at all in most of their lives, and then they do these amazingly foolish things. So it's like a very part-time job, being a fool. The idiot is something else. Okay, I'm going to grant that. And I'm going to say the position that all one's decisions should be foolish. Oh, no, I don't. I'm not endorsing it. Is not what yeah, anyone not endorses. Okay. <laughs> and we should get rid of Let's that. Let's strike that off the list. No one thinks that for breakfast you should have poison. The more foolish, the better. Yeah, no one thinks you should you should inject uh, Ivermectin <laughs> yeah. in order not to get COVID. Uh, no one, no one right. thinks you should drive the opposite way down the street. <laughs> no. no one thinks you should maximize foolishness. <laughs> okay. So let's take that position off the table. We've made a little and, bit of progress. Uh, okay. Those of you who were worried if everything you should do should be foolish, you've gotten something from the podcast. Although one kind of wonders if you were in <laughs> fact the maximal fool, whether you will even be able to listen to what we said or you'll think, oh, they said to do X, therefore let me do the opposite of X because I'm a fool. So Let me invoke my distinction. Only an idiot would think that you should always be a fool. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Okay, let's move on. And the question okay. I have is... What was my question? My question is... Is it good... I would say, isn't it good to be capable of being a fool? To be a fool sometimes. And to be fooled. Why would it be good? Because it's, again, I think that part of being a fool is is being willing to trust something and have a kind of faith. And why would you want to trust something without verifying? Because you will miss out on all kinds of good things if you're constantly insisting on verifying and checking and thinking it through and deliberating and calculating. Just there are all kinds of joys in life you won't be ready to sort of, again, jump for because right. you'll be too busy worrying about whether you're being a fool. Is the optimal mix of suspicion and trust environment dependent? Whoa. Uh, environment dependent. Here's my idea. Yeah. If you're growing up in the streets of 1991 Bucharest, ah. where everyone is trying to con you, ah. perhaps yeah. it would be wise to be more, yes. less trusting. <laughs> I think so. But if you were growing up in <laughs> yeah. a, a rather Pacific yep. climb, you can afford where people trust. are more trusting, yep. perhaps you would be better to be yeah. more trusting. I think that comfort and privilege and safety make people better by allowing them to have the luxury of trusting other people. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And so so I do think moral character is definitely conditioned by circumstance and 
in a way it's kind of, it does it's a little paradoxical that you are made a better person probably a lot of moralists in history would not have liked this idea you have better chance of being a good person by being protected from some kinds of wisdom and intelligence a certain innocence is actually better i guess i'm which is going in an interesting direction yeah, yeah. but what i worry is that those people are gentle yeah and nice and perhaps pleasant to be around but not actually better people I see. I don't say they're automatically better people, but they have a certain kind of virtue. I think being able to trust other people and not be too and suspicious is a virtue. And I think they, they have a certain yeah. lack of virtue ah. that's correlative, which yeah. is that they're a bit smug. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, now, wait a minute. <laughs> they might or they might not be. But the people who are overly suspicious and untrusting, maybe because they have to be, Yes. I think, as long as we're throwing around ad hominem yes. <laughs> characterizations, they can have a meanness about them. They can be a bit mean. Cynicism and sort yeah. of misanthropic kind of like, well, everybody's a cheat. The other thing I have to say, just, just in the interest of being terrifying and unhelpful, yeah. <laughs> is that those people who are living in high-trust communities yeah. are just waiting for a cunning knave to come along and make bank well the taking advantage of their trust like bernie maddow they're vulnerable to it but that's what i mean yeah i mean they're waiting in the sense that something is an accident waiting to be happening they are hap but that just means happen. they're vulnerable i don't think that speaks against their character or anything like no, that. no no i think okay. it's just it's it's just it's just a disquieting point yeah okay let's take a little bit of a break and we'll see if there's an advertiser who's able to trick our naive listeners <laughs> out of their hard-earned cash <laughs> to fool um, them to fool them. Okay, we're going to take a break. Well, everybody's bank accounts are thoroughly cleaned out by that very <laughs> persuasive ad for something that was well worth whatever uh, you were supposed to pay for it. But we're talking about fools, and we're talking about what's good about being a fool. And what Taylor has said is that if you're not a fool, you will miss out on opportunities that are good, even though you don't have a good reason to know that they're good. Yeah, that's right, because you're making a leap of faith and you're trusting something. And so here, let me put it the other way to tighten the screws a little. Don't you think yes. life would be kind of bleak if you were not capable of making one of those kind of seemingly irrational leaps of faith and trust? And I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And by the way, I, I, I'm... I think one can be utterly flinty-eyed and acknowledge <laughs> that there are certain things that are just great and you don't know them until you take the leap. Like, for example, suppose you're Hugh Grant's character in About a Boy and all you like is status and buying toys and being lonely. I mean, like, you don't like being lonely, but you don't, <laughs> you are lonely. And all you like is your sort of little version, yeah. little circle of narcissistic um, uh, accomplishments, like making money, having nice clothing, uh, having sexual encounters that never lead to any commitment, and uh, winning at video games. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and by the way, About a Boy, if you don't know it, is a retelling of Silas Marner, which is a great novel by uh -huh. George Eliot. Um, so you don't know that if you actually open your heart to the boy... A year from now, your life will be much, much richer. You'll be mm -hmm. changed. Mm -hmm. And this is a little bit of a, there's a philosopher named Paul who has this argument. Lori Paul. You'll be changed into somebody different. 
Lori Pohl, Lori Pohl, yeah. right. Yeah. I was going to say Les Pohl, but that's, I think, <laughs> a, a guitarist. Um, Lori Pohl. So we're, you're transformed by this relationship with the boy into a different person who's got a better life. But the pre-transformation Hugh Grant doesn't know that and couldn't. And yep. therefore, what seems to him foolishness, and in a sense is foolishness, because he's it's not going to make him win more video games. It's not going to make him more money. By all his values, it is a loss, the caring about this boy. Nevertheless, it transforms him into something better. Yeah. And that seems to me absolutely true. Yeah. There are these commitments that change you in a way that you couldn't have anticipated. This is what uh, Laurie Paul talks about, transformative experiences, which are unanticipatable, unpredictable. They change you so that you no longer have the same criteria or standards after the choice as before it. So there's a kind of incommensurability of points of view. Right. And look, it's not a, um, it needn't be romantic. Right. Like, no, no. like I don't know very much about what uh, Volodymyr Zelensky was like before he became involved in politics. So I'm not gonna say something historically accurate, but just mm -hmm. I'll create a, a counter, uh, I'll create a philosophical example based on the real man, which is that he was a television yeah. producer and a comedy writer, right. and he didn't know if being politically engaged in the struggle against corruption in Ukraine, maybe he just did it because he thought he'd get good ratings. Yeah, yeah. But in the process right. of doing it, yeah. he became transformed into someone who cared about Ukraine, and then he reached this decision point where he could either stay in Kiev and risk being killed yeah. or run away and, and be like a television producer in Paris. And now it turns and out he he's got amazing stay. leadership skills, and I wonder if he knew that he had those already. I don't know. But somehow it's almost like the, the collective has absorbed him and made something more of him than he knew going in. Yeah. And it might have seemed like a foolish decision if he was just like, and again, I, I, I apologize, <laughs> maybe this is not even remotely true, but imagine it were true yeah. that all he cared about was like winning Emmys. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he would think, I'm going to be risking my life in the basement of uh, a government building in Kiev? Yeah. I don't want, that doesn't sound good. That seems like a foolish decision. How's that going to help me win an Emmy? I think, I, I can't think of examples exactly, but I have heard people say, you know, who turned out to be wildly successful at something like, I didn't know I was good at this. I mean, I don't think we know right. ourselves until we do things and then interact with other people. But it's and, even a big, a bigger, it's even yeah. a bigger unsettling thing, which is, I didn't know that I even thought it would be good to be good at this. Right. Yeah, right, right. But, yeah. I think like, that can happen. Right. It happens in the bad way. We know I mean uh -huh. Paul Professor Paul talks about the vampire mm -hmm. that the vampire bites you and turns you into um a vampire who cares about sleeping in coffins and drinking blood, which you didn't <laughs> care about before. I've yeah. heard people say that cocaine, I've never taken cocaine, but I've heard people say cocaine kills you and replaces you with a person who only cares about getting high on cocaine. And that sounds very bad. And if we said, it's funny, how would this conversation go differently if we said only fools try cocaine? Yeah. And I think, wouldn't people say, yeah, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> if there's this weird white powder that we've never heard anything good about taking it, and we've heard that 10% of people like it so much that they wreck their lives. Yeah. 
it's foolish to take that powder, and that might well be true. There's lots of other people I've heard say things like, man, I never thought I would be homeless. I mean, I never thought I would be addicted to drugs or in prison or jail or never in a million years did I think this was going to happen. And then you can't just rewind to the person you used to be. So one kind of big commitment is having kids. You have yeah. no idea how that's going to go. That's a scary one because, I mean, things could go badly in all kinds of ways that are totally out of your control. It's true. You know, I won't even mention them all just to save us all yeah, the— Yeah, kind of it's in effect for this podcast. You know what Kanahara means, right? No, I don't. Kanahara means let there be no evil eye. It's a uh. superstitious statement that you make whenever talking about, usually whenever talking about something good. So if, if you say, oh my goodness, your child is so beautiful, a superstitious person will say Kanahara, meaning let that not attract uh. envy or some kind of wicked spirit to do something bad but then sometimes people who are even i think more superstitious even yeah. if they talk about something bad will say kind of her let some passing dibuk not overhear this and make it happen so yeah i see so kind yeah. of is in is, uh, effect but so then suppose things go really badly um, yes. you know with the kids you've got you can't yes like i think bernard williams has some example about like the solution is not kill your children. <laughs> right. I mean, you can't just undo this. What did Timmy, what did young Timmy Williams think? Did he ever read this article? Uh, young Timmy Williams. I'm kidding. Uh, is there a, uh, is there a <laughs> child of Bernard who's running around? Oh, with them? <laughs> I, not that I know of. What are you working on in there, father? Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost I'm, finished. I'm saying that I should kill you, even though I uh -huh. deeply regret your existence. Okay. Thanks, father. But you can't undo this no. stuff, and maybe you wouldn't even want to. Once you've become a pickle, you can't go back to being a cucumber. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. I think right, we're right. maybe we're we're beings that are a bit like we're made out of water, hmm. and then there's all these streams, and sometimes we place ourselves in these streams, ah. and we become mixed in the waters of the stream, and that's all she we're wrote. We're so changeable. She... <laughs> the thing that terrifies me about this is I think it's good to be trusting, it's good to be open to new experiences and to be willing to take risks and follow your heart. In other words, when you fall, it's good to be able to go with it. But it's also clearly a virtue to be able to stop yourself if it's clearly a stupid thing to do. And that can take some real courage because you're actually resisting something in yourself. Right. Not just something being foisted on you, but the inertia of your own passions. And and then then you're in a real conflict with yourself, and that's very difficult. Now, the terrifying thought for me is that it may be impossible to know when you're in that situation and you should stop yourself. And there's no way to there's tell. There's no way to tell. Now, what do you think? I, I, I tend to agree with you, but what if you, you spoke to 10 people who have a track record for really having your best interests at heart? And you're like, I'm going to stop being a yeah, philosophy yeah. professor and I'm going to go with Deanna. Um, and we're going to play in bars in Ireland because I'm in love with her and she's just so wonderful. And if you went to 10 people who have had a track record of being on the Taylor Carmen team mm -hmm. and they said, no, man, like yeah. she's she's not that great and you're going to regret it. Don't do it. Um, you don't think that procedure is reliable? I don't think there's any procedure. Right. Exactly. I don't. Well, that's a because... procedure I suggest. What's wrong right. with that procedure? Uh they might be wrong. They might <laughs> that's, be wrong. All, that's all it is. I mean, how could they know? I mean, now you were thinking maybe from their outside perspective, they know better. But you can't just forfeit your own point of view for some outside expert. This reminds me of a New Yorker cartoon I'm just going to throw in oh, here, what is, which is a, one snail talking to the other and the one saying, I don't care if she is a tape dispenser. I love her. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> okay. 
Let yep. let us let us live and love, my dear. Let us love and never fear what the sourest fathers say. Now mm. I'm I'm want to speak for the sourest fathers for a second. <laughs> but they're sour. It's just like, yeah, but but you're drunk on honey. That, that they're saying like what you're feeling in the presence of Deanna is simply lust. Your uh, mind has well, been twisted yeah. by pleasure. There's that. But there yeah. is this thing about look, you're you're uh you have a lot of things to still say to the world about philosophy and you're you're leaving your duty behind if you just go and and party in 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 uh, yeah. Ireland. <laughs> well, that might be a good argument actually. I mean, this is what Dante thought about. Oh, this is exciting. What's yeah. the difference between love and lust? Here on uh, here on Terrifying Questions podcast, that's, that suddenly got juicy. What's yeah. the difference between love and lust? Well, lust is desiring pleasure, and once the pleasure is over, pleasure tends to be fleeting, as we all know. And once it's right. over, the the commitment is kind of gone, at least temporarily. And love has this committed, kind of enduring sort of feature about it. I mean, it's hard to draw a sharp line. I I don't like the idea that there's a very sharp line, actually. So I, I think there's there's a gradation between sort of right. pleasure-oriented commitments and something like security. Because it, it sounds to me like um, the difference oughtn't to be that love is a better strategy for maintaining long-term pleasure. Like, it's not just about... That's not necessarily true. Like, like supposing somebody was like, I'm going to have love with Deanna for a week. That's going to be the most meaningful week of my life. Mm. Oh, this is a plot of Bridges of Madison County. Oh. It's about a woman who, uh, she's in a happy, but maybe slightly boring marriage, and a, a photographer, I think played by oh, Clint yeah. Eastwood or, or somebody like that, some or Kevin Cosner, some hunky grizzled fella right. comes to town to take pictures of the bridges of madison county oh, yeah. and she has a week-long affair and she's she's glad she did because it was such a great week and she's not expecting him to be committed to her nor she to him mm -hmm. and yet that could be love I, that's yeah. that's why I'm, I'm waiting for the other shooter job that could be love yeah. despite the fact oh, that sure. it doesn't expect long-term commitment you know there's almost always something like love involved right because i also think that if there was an intelligent sequoia tree it would <laughs> think the difference between a week of passion and an 80-year marriage is pretty nugatory <laughs> it'd be like both of them are flashes in a pan right um, <laughs> yeah i don't know why we're listening to the tree on our romantic lives that's another question but we've decided to yeah. and and he is he's had a lot of good things to say and also he's so large that we can't help but kind of listen to what he has to say. He's very impressive. Oh, how cool would the ants have been if they were sequoias? My goodness. So tell us about Dido. Who is this Dido character? Dido, yes. Um, Dido was the queen of uh, Carthage, northern mm -hmm. Africa, and Aeneas, who was a Trojan, who was on his way to found a new city in Italy, which was to be called Rome, mm -hmm. uh, stops there, and she hosts him. And her former husband was killed by her brother uh -huh. and she's refusing a lot of other suitors but she really falls in love with Aeneas he's telling her all about the escape from Troy and all his adventures and before she knows it wow boy is she in love with him and they go out in the woods and they have a little fling and Juno is there who's uh, the goddess of love and marriage mm -hmm. and she oversees this wedding which is not much of a formal ceremony, but it's enough to Dido considers them married. But Juno and 
uh, who's the Roman Aphrodite? Venus. Venus, yes, Venus, who is Aeneas's mom. Gato Venus Cupidinesque. Exactly. You can say that again. Yeah. Okay. What is what does Venus say? Venus, who's uh, Aeneas's mom, interestingly, and Juno conspire to distract Aeneas from his task of founding the future Rome. And so he has this little fling with Dido, but then he remembers he's got to go found Rome. And so he's off in the middle of the night and he leaves. And Dido is heartbroken and totally crushed. And so she has a big funeral pyre built and then throws herself on it and falls on her sword and and says in the Henry Purcell opera so movingly, uh, remember me, remember me, but forget my fate. Now, Dante puts her in hell? Yes, he does, actually. She's Why? in hell. Uh, Why? Be, well, let's see. Because to my 21st century American sensibilities, yeah. she sounds terrific. She... <laughs> A-OK. Um, yeah. Well, things went badly for her. So if you're very romantic, you just think she's a victim, poor her, and it's terrible. Yeah. Dante puts her in hell with Paolo and Francesca, who are similar, because they just were not in control of their passions. Here's here's the, the difference. Um, Virgil, the Roman poet who wrote the Aeneid, thinks that what was wrong with her is that she wasn't a good sort of Stoic and didn't have control of her passions, because the Stoics thought self-control was the highest thing. But I think Dante thinks that her passion was misdirected. Her love was directed at Aeneas, and he wasn't worthy of that love. I think for Dante, only God would be worthy of that kind of love. So they've got different sorts of reasons to disapprove of her, but they both disapprove of her. They both think that she did not only the wrong thing, it wasn't just the wrong decision, but she was being bad. Because she was falling in love. Yeah. Is she breaking a promise of eternal fidelity to her dead husband? That's how the citizens of Carthage saw it, yeah. But her sister and confidant, she's making the case that you ought to be open to something like this happening. He says that. But I think for Virgil, the badness is that uh, maybe like along the lines you were arguing a little earlier, she was being kind of stupid. She was falling for something she should not have fallen for because why think that this Aeneas guy coming from Troy and obviously on his way to do something, you know, is going to care about you. You shouldn't have been such a fool. So if she were a princess of Etruria, would Virgil have been okay with it? If he's like, I'm coming to Italy to found Rome. And she's like, I don't have anything going on. You're hot. Let's get married and be king and queen of Rome. Virgil would be okay with that. Maybe if she had been in the right place at the right time so that it was compatible with his being the founder of Rome, things would have worked out. But here's the interesting thing. I think the reason that Virgil's poem and Dante are both so moving is that they have a lot of sympathy for her. It's not just condemnatory. They do disapprove, but they are well, full of sympathy. It's not condemnatory. He's putting her in hell. Yeah. Like how, how much more condemnatory <laughs> can you get? Well, here's the Could thing. could he put her in purgatory at least? Just before he mentions Dido, no, just after he mentions Dido, then we meet Paolo and Francesca, who are these lovers. And Francesca tells Dante the whole story about Paolo. Now, come to think of it, I think Paolo might have been her husband's brother. So that's not good. But he comes over with a book of love poems and reads to her, and then pretty soon they drop the book, and they're all over each other. They're going to town. Do they murder her husband? Is it like Hamlet? I don't think that happened. I think, in fact, oh no, in fact, I think the husband murdered Paolo. I think that maybe how he ended up oh in hell. Goodness. Maybe he killed them both. Anyway, he killed them both, and and also I, I they have think to go so. To hell well, yeah. Next. Now they went to hell because they they were passionate, but. 
Dante, who's the pilgrim Dante, who's walking through hell with Virgil, mm-hmm. and he sees them. And while Francesca is telling this story of their love, their passion, which is really lust, and he says, she says, he kissed me on the mouth, and she says, boca, which is like a rude word for mouth. It's like not, not, not he didn't okay. kiss me on the lips. He kissed me on my mouth, my open mouth. Okay. And then she's speaking, and Paolo doesn't say anything the whole time, but he's weeping, and then Dante is so overcome with emotion that he faints and falls over like dead. So Dante the Pilgrim is totally moved, and he's full of sympathy and pity. But now Dante the Poet, who's telling us all about this, there's real disagreement in the secondary literature about what Dante the Poet thinks. He may think that Dante the Pilgrim, who faints with sympathy, is just like lost his perspective and in judgment, and he should know better because they're in hell and they deserve to be in hell. So I don't think we know exactly what Dante thought about this. I think he was torn. I think he was full of sympathy for them. Uh, One reason to think he was is that Mm -hmm. the Christian ideal is to be full of something like passionate love, but directed at God. So uh, like Plato, the love for God is supposed to be full of passion. It's not just kind of respect or obedience or, you know, brotherly love exactly. What is an example? Are you supposed to be a fool for Uh, God? Well, yeah, you're supposed to be totally trusting in God. Yeah, even foolishly trusting in God, I think. I mean, full of faith, which means, um, yeah, I think that's a Christian, very traditional Christian idea. You had better not sit around calculating whether this is a good choice or not. That you better you better be all in for it. But hang on just a second. But they also think it is a good choice. Uh, Pascal thought that it's the best choice you could possibly make because then, well, then how yeah. are you being a fool for God? It sounds like you're being a well a good accountant. Not not according to Pascal. <laughs> Pascal's not typical of the tradition. I think he so Pascal thinks. Look, if you're going to do the calculation, it's an open and shut case because the stakes are everything. You have eternal happiness to win and eternal misery if you lose. And if right, God right, right, doesn't right. exist. You haven't really lost or won anything, so obviously. But then that doesn't take you very far because now the question is, how do you believe in God? And then Pascal just says, you just have to like go to church, listen to the hymns, sing, pray, and hope that you will sort of come to believe in God and trust him totally. So it's like there's a calculation to make, which is totally simple and totally definitive. But then you're on your own to kind of have faith somehow, and you just have to give yourself to it and be receptive. Right. You know, in um, in Vaishnavism, in the form of um, bhakti devotion in in India, hmm. which is directed towards Krishna, hmm. the model is supposed to be the love an adulterous woman has for her lover. Oh, really? Because the idea is takes you beyond right and wrong i think it takes you beyond right and wrong it takes beyond conventional approval and disapproval and you're just that's interesting full-on committing to your love of god i mean to the extent of sort of like like well i mean there's a lot of interesting uh analogies like one of them is sort of like the way in which you can you can dance while having a pot of water bounced on your head that like you could be living your life, but you're constantly thinking about that pot of water in your head or sort of like you might be crying with love for God so much that you'll waste away. You'll starve to death because you're so enamored with Krishna. Interesting. You know, Nietzsche said everything done from love is done beyond good and evil. That sounds a little. Now, was he quoting 
I don't think so. The Dhammapada? Well, no, but I'm struck by the similarity about that. I don't. I doubt he knew about it, but I... Uh, I think he might have been quoting the Dhammapada. Again, so? that's another thing, a, a, a Theravada or um, Hinayana Buddhist text. But that's another thing for our listeners. Was the title Beyond Good and Evil a quote from some Buddhist scripture? Oh, I've never uh, heard it said. I feel but, like it might have been. Yeah. I feel like it might have been. I mean, he occasionally um, refers to Buddhism now and then, but I thought he got it mostly through Schopenhauer. But maybe he did. I don't know. It's possible. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know. So, uh, he wouldn't like the wasting away bit of it. But yeah, yeah, Beyond Good and Evil, Love Beyond Good and Evil is definitely a Nietzschean idea. It's surprising that that's part of an established religion. Oh, that it's antinomian, right? Um, like you'd think that they wouldn't be, they would, they would be telling people that they should be not cheating on their husbands, right? Like you'd think that it's, it's part of the job of religious people to tell people to follow the rules. And I think it's a little, there's at least in the, uh, in the Hindu tradition, but there might be something analogous in Europe. There's both because I think, I think there's the path of Dharma, which is the path of sort of following your social duty mm -hmm. and then there's a the path of moksha which is the task of release from the fetters of conceptual thought and oh um, well that reminds me of kierkegaard everything reminds me of kierkegaard and nietzsche but that sounds like the ethical and the religious you've got sort of the duties whether they're conventional or moral and then you've got this other sort of openness of the heart and leap of uh passionate leap of some kind now, did we talk about this yet? Or I can't remember if I just emailed it to you. The question of whether you can be an existentialist in the sheets and a liberal Democrat in the streets. <laughs> like, like, can you can you make a passionate commitment yeah. to people, but not vote that way? Because because uh, it's a little bit close to certain fascist arguments to say, hmm. like, I, I've never read Schmidt. I find him disgusting and a racist. But yeah. what it was quoted to me by Hans Sluge was he said, politics is all about making an existential commitment to who is your friend and who is your enemy. Right. And then going from that. And, yeah. and I think that's terrible. Yeah. Like, 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 I don't want to endorse that on this podcast or in my life. But um, that's the romanticism in politics kind of idea, right? So when you yes. said existentialist in the sheets and liberal Democrat in the streets, I was going to say there's something appealing about that because in politics you have to be very shrewd and pragmatic and realistic. And I mean, there's a place for passionate action and revolutionary action and leaps of faith and so on and so on. But there's a lot of it that has to be calculation and best of two bad choices, the least worst option, you know, voting for Biden in order that Trump isn't elected. And right. So there's a lot of necessary pragmatism and realism in politics and so on. There's a lot more latitude for passion and leaps of faith in the messiness of personal individual life and commitment and so on. That seems to me these are two different spheres of action. And Yeah, I hope so. Are you worried that in the fight between fascists and liberals, the fascists will win because they're willing to take it to the mat more um, because they have a, a yeah. an irrational conviction. Uh, like, here's what I think is like, supposing there's a, let's take it in the personal sphere. There's a guy named Brad and there's two women, both of whom want to marry him. <laughs> and one of them is passionately in love with him. Yeah. And she will sacrifice anything to be with Brad. 
and the other one thinks it'd just be a pretty good way of maximizing her chance to a happy life to be with Brad. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and who is she going to go with? Let's discuss that when we come back. Okay. Okay, let's take yep. a little bit of a break. Okay, well that was a good break. So we're 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 discussing um which is better, a foolish life of passion or a boring life of rationalistic calculation. <laughs> and we're considering there's this fellow Brad, and he has two women who want to marry him. Yeah. One of them, her name is um, Tina. Um, and, oh, you want her to be Francesca. Okay, one of them is named <laughs> Francesca. And she um, is passionately in love with him. She would rather die than live life on Earth without um, Brad. And the other one, her name is Tina. Mm -hmm. And she thinks... Given the other guys who are likely to marry me and the amount of time I have to search for a husband, my best course in, of action is to settle on Brad and have a family. She thinks they would make a good team. They'd make a good team, <laughs> while Francesca thinks she'll die yeah. if she doesn't have his kisses. <laughs> now, who should he pick? <laughs> There's no way to know. There's just absolutely it, it, no way. I guess way. I think that most people would say, I want Francesca. She seems to be really into me. And <laughs> certainly, if I'm going to put my money down, I think she's probably going to win in this contest because she wants it more. Maybe. And it's going to, it might turn out to be disastrous. I mean, but he has to make this choice in fear and trembling, as he does. would have said. Because I um, guess what I was yeah. thinking is then if you're looking at two people trying to control a country and one of them is a fascist and says, I would rather die yeah. than for an inch of, let's say it's Kaplanstan, yeah. for an inch of Kaplanstan <laughs> to fall under the control of the of the global capitalists. Yeah. And then the other person is just like, I don't know, I think people's lives in Kaplanstan will probably be better if we have a liberal democratic government. My fear is that the fascist is just more passionate. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, you know, there is, he's more likely to win. This resonates with contemporary politics because what people often say, and I think is right, is that the Democrats often lose out to the Republicans the Repu because the Republicans are fierce, ruthless, competitive, committed. They, they're like strategizing way in advance. So now we've lost Roe v. Wade. The Supreme Court is stacked because the Republicans have had this long fanatical commitment and the Democrats are compromisers and trying to avoid conflict and you've got Obama everybody loved Obama so much so much not everybody but a lot of people did because he was saying let's not be so polarized and I never liked this about Obama he was just like let's all be friends and and he wasn't willing to fight uh you know really tough battles I thought so you might think yeah the fascists or the fanatics the ruthless ones who are like really thinking of politics as a fight at every step uh, maybe you're going to win because of that. But I take some solace in the idea that these uh, fanatical sorts of movements are also short-lived. They kind of flare out and they run out of gas. And there's a long-term strategy which is going to eventually just overwhelm them, overcome them. And I think that often happens, certainly with the fascist regimes in the Second World War, but also yeah, a lot of right-wing politics in the United States. It tends to flare up and then disappear. And there's the long haul. You know, think of civil rights movement and LGBT stuff. There's a lot of this which has such historical momentum that eventually it's just going to sort of drown out 
through a kind of slow, steady, constant pressure, all the sort yeah. of reactionary voices and stuff. That's my faith. I guess what one one thing that that I take some hope in is that as soon as you say that an irrational commitment and a passionate commitment without calculation is a good idea, kajillions of people decide to calculate and decide that the best thing to do is to pretend to be doing that. So oh, I, th- I, th- I think that <laughs> I even if it were true yeah. that the best thing is to love uh-huh. like a fool, yeah. you're never going to know if you are loving like a fool yeah. because many people are going to, in a knavish, calculating way, pretend to be fools. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That's what I want to say to everybody following I see. a fascist rabbit hole. Yeah. How do you know that the person who's telling you not to care about money isn't just doing it to get your money. Absolutely. And the thing is, you yeah. don't. No, you don't. <laughs> Although sometimes you ought to. You ought to know because it's obvious enough. Yeah, you're being taken for a ride. And uh, maybe it's not exactly a solution to our terrifying question. But one thing that I've come to think is when I look back on big life-determining decisions I've made, the ones that were sort of passion-driven and without too much reflection, like you know, like what I was that I was going to go to college or graduate school or that I was going to study philosophy and so on. They were big leaps of faith, but they didn't feel like huge risks in fear and trembling where I was sort of having to screw up my courage, as they say, and jump off a cliff. It didn't feel that way at all. It felt like I had momentum and it was sort of the easy and right and obvious thing to do, even though there was huge amounts of uncertainty and I couldn't have really justified it in very rational ways. It just seemed like the obvious thing to do. So what I guess I'm saying is I I believe in gut feelings. And I've often found that when I'm doing something and I'm really feeling like when Kierkegaard talks about fear and trembling, like I'm standing at the edge of a cliff and the question is, do I jump or do I not? There's part of me that already is not committed and it's clear and I'm fighting myself to make the commitment. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a, a biological male and, and, and you are too. Mm-hmm. And um, that means I've never biologically given birth. But what I feel about those decisions is that there's a part of me that's being born and that that part doesn't have the language to defend itself right. yet. Yeah, and that's yeah. why it can feel irrational. Ah, yeah. But it gets the language. Yeah. So so I felt like future me was wanting to be born. Yeah, and right. previous me was a bit unable to articulate that. And, and it even could be very emotionally uncomfortable. But there was a wisdom that there was another part of me that had yet to articulate itself yeah but that it was coming to be right interesting interesting right and the and then being born is just this thing that's going to happen and it's got like i think maybe that sounds like what i was calling momentum there's already an inertia behind it and what is that song how do you stop the rising corn how do you stop a baby being born how do you stop a problem like maria (laughs) that's That's Saul. but this is uh how do you stop love or something like that it's a anyway so there's a kind of effortlessness that comes with this is the way i think of leaps of faith it's a it's not really quite like Kierkegaard. i think the whole the drama about fear and trembling is maybe misleading and a bad description of a really good kind of passionate commitment, which is what he calls commitments of faith. Did you hear him say, as Stanley Cavell uses this as the epigraph for pursuits of happiness, but I don't know where he said it, that if I had if I had had more faith, I would have stayed with Regine. He, he does say that with Regina. Yeah. Regina. Yeah. Why is that? 
oh, who knows if he said that in the middle of the night, sort of in right. some kind of anxiety attack. And I, so it is a, is a poignant and touching thing to say. So when he was in his 20s engaged to this teenage girl uh, for a year and then called off the engagement, it was a local little scandal. But he kind of was thinking that he couldn't be a married man and write all the books he wanted to write. And mm-hmm. have, and he thought he was going to die at the age of 30 because there was a curse on his father's house. And he thought all kinds of things. And several of his brothers had died. And One of them is buried in New Jersey. Yes, he went to the, the, the New World. That's right. I forgot that he was buried yeah. in New Jersey. Have you ever been to his grave? Is it visible? No, I haven't, but I'd love to. I wonder to. if, do people know where it is? Is it a known thing? I don't know. Uh, I don't know if any of our listeners uh, want to go and take yeah. a picture of yourself by the grave <laughs> of Kierkegaard's brother and post it Interesting. to their webpage. We'd like to see it. So um, so when he said if I'd had faith, uh, I would have stayed with her. I have always heard that as meaning this might seem like an impossible combination of things, like to live the life he was going to live and either write all his books, maybe die young and leave her an unhappy widow. Um, at the time, that seemed impossible to him and he made a, maybe it was a hard choice of one or the other. But if you right. had faith, like the Knight of Faith, you would be able to do both. And even though that seems like a paradox, he could have embraced the paradox and gone for it. Right. I think there's a right. real question of how much he loved Regina after all and whether well, he was feeling like standing at the edge of a cliff and maybe he made the right choice because he thought, this is not going to work. And I just know maybe. it isn't. And, um, maybe it would not have uh, worked. She would have left me quickly right. <laughs> if yeah. it, she'd known that and I was going to spend all up... day standing at my standing desk and writing 800-page books. Right. Yeah. Writing yeah. all these yeah. books, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it's a it's a poignant thing to say, isn't it? To think like um, maybe I could have had both and done everything, and yeah. I was a fool to make the calculation that I had to have one and not the other. It was impossible. Oh, but um, maybe only fools don't fall in love. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. all right, right. Yes. Well, that's I think it's answer. a different kind of fool. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. The fool yeah. who's not willing pick, to pick your folly. There's another. I'm just reminded of another song lyric about what is it? It's a fool who plays it cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. John Lennon. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. There's a his lot message, of songs that his say his message to his son. Yeah. His message to his son. It's a fool who plays it cool. Oh no, that's in Hey Jude, isn't it? It is in Hey Jude, but that's Julian Lennon. Yeah. So so we've taken a trip from Sinatra to John Lennon, and and, okay. and it's glad to have made it. Okay, peace, everybody. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and edited by Taylor Carmen.